way to bring down the Thanksgiving spirit than to do a true crime episode. I know, I know. It's been a minute though. And like, I've been like ready to do one again. So here we are. Me too, for sure. Well, what are you drinking? I am drinking sangria. I got this red sangria from Whole Foods. I think it's called Epa or something. And then I just mixed it with a raspberry bubbly just to add a little fizz to it. Oh, that sounds good. What are you drinking? I'm drinking my 19 Crime Snoop Dogg wine. Classic. Classic. Can't go wrong. Look. My nails are the same color as my Mmm. Love that for you. You keep lagging a, a slight bit. Oh. And now you froze. That's not good. No. Yeah, you're frozen. Really? Yes. Okay, you're unfrozen now. Okay, no, I just got oh, should I should I restart before we get too far into it? Probably. Just to be safe. Or what 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 worked last time? You like turned your TV off or like the Wi-Fi on your phone off or like something? Oh, let me try to disconnect my phone. Yeah, that might help. Okay, we'll try that. Okay, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Okay, so what did you do this weekend? So on Thursday, we went to Mount Rife. And hot take, y'all, I don't think he's that good live. I just, like, wasn't overly impressed. First of all, I think the venue was way too big. I don't think comedians have any business being in a venue bigger than, like, a comedy club or a small theater. Yeah. Um, Because a lot of their work is crowd work. And I feel like it just takes away from the experience, like, almost, like, knowing that you're not going to get picked and you're all the way in the back and, like... I don't know you can't even see his face and his jokes honestly weren't that funny because his special came out um this week and so he even said like now that the special's out it's all a new material he's working and so we were like the first or second show like right after the new material like testing and then I mean I haven't watched the special I also heard it was a little not funny either but and it was also weird that we were like the youngest people there really why were many people there's so many people in their 50s and 60s that's interesting yeah so I don't know still a good time like I I had a great time still but I don't know if I would spend the money I spent to see him again you got it um I worked but then I went to Carbone for dinner um which is super fancy Italian restaurants was an arm and a leg but so so worth it and then the rest I worked so Happy birthday, great. Happy birthday. We love a call weekend. <laughs> um, what about you? What did you do? Well, my cousin came in town to visit. She goes to college at a small school in Florida. Um, she's originally from Kentucky, but she goes to school down here. And we've been saying for like years that she should come visit while she's still in Florida. She's graduating in spring and she finally made it. Um. So it was a lot of fun. Friday night, we went out for Mexican with my mom and our other cousin who lives in West Palm. Um, And then she and I stayed out in West Palm for a while after. Do you know, we tried to go to a bar and I don't remember what bar it was because I was pretty drunk, but we, they wouldn't let us in because they said it was 23 and up. Have you ever heard of that before? 23? Yeah, and my cousin's 21. She just turned, well, she turned 21, like, in May or something. But I've never heard of that. That is so weird. 
yeah so whatever but she and I had a good time Saturday we got up and we went to the gym and then we went to brunch and then we went to a friend's giving that Andres's cousin had and then yesterday we just kind of hung out for a bit she headed back to school and then Andres and I did our little annual tradition of going to dr- going drunk going to brunch get a little tipsy and then coming home and putting our Christmas decorations up cute so it was a lot of fun I'm still absolutely exhausted today from the weekend because I could not hang like that anymore but we partied like we were both 21 this weekend and I'm exhausted <laughs> that's so fun though to have like those weekends here and there it was and she and I like obviously she you knows she's like seven years younger than me um we've always been like a little close though and like you know you like keep up on social media but and so it was fun to like get to like spend the weekend together it was a lot of fun nice yes anyways true crime would you like to go first sure I'll go first okay so today as usual with my true crime I read the first part of it and said this sounds good but I also want to read it as I go with you guys so okay I am talking about the horrific case of the Snowtown murders um In 1999, police in Snowtown, Australia, made a shocking discovery when they found eight barrels containing bodies in an old bank vault. The case quickly became known as the Bodies in Barrels Murders. That's like a, that's a lot of S's. Bodies in Barrels Murders. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Barrel Murders would have been like a a better option, but. Yeah. Typically bodies means they're. I digress. Okay. And then they later became known as the Snowtown Murders. The killings were eventually attributed to John Bunting, Robert Wagner, James Vlaskis, and Mark Hayden, who all worked together as a team of serial killers for years. The police investigation eventually determined Bunting and the other men had murdered 12 people. Many of the victims were men, and most were tortured prior to their deaths. We'll talk about John Bunting primarily. Okay. So, um, John Bunting was born on September 4th, 1966, um, and was re- reportedly charming and friendly when he wanted to be. However, he reported sh- he reportedly showed signs of violence from an early age. He allegedly had an interest in weaponry, weapon weaponry, and eventually became harming neighborhood animals, even killing a friend's dog. Um, and then he also started working at a slaughterhouse where he um, told coworkers he enjoyed killing animals. From my studies, that is literally diagnostic for a sociopath. Just an FYI, everyone. <laughs> um, so at nearly 26 years old, Bunsing committed his first murder when he killed a 22-year-old Linton Trezise in August of 1920, 1992. Bunsing later claimed that that person, I wish I could pronounce his name since he is a victim in this case, but I'm so sorry, Clinton, was a child predator who Bunting often referred to as happy pants. Bunting buried Clinton in a shallow, shallow grave, but his body wasn't found until two years later on August 16, 1994. At the time, police had no idea who the killer was. When Bunting was eight years old, he was beaten and sexually assaulted by a friend's older brother. This event reportedly led Bunting to develop a deep hatred not only of pedophiles, but also of gay men and anyone he considered weak. In a spare room of his house, Bunting had what he called a rock spider wall, which was all covered with pictures of names and pictures and names of men, all connected by the string. 
The wall was named after the slang term rock spider used in Australia to refer to pedophiles. In most cases, there was no substance. I don't know. How do you pronounce a substantive substantive? What's like the rest of the sentence, like the rest of the phrase? There's no substantive <laughs> evidence that any of this, these men had committed crimes against children and Bunting's assumptions were largely based off rumors. There's no substantive, subs, 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 substantial, substantial evidence. Yes. That's, okay. Anyways, moving on. English with Lauren. Okay. <laughs> John Bunting became friends with Robert Wagner and Wagner's girlfriend, Vanessa Lane, in 1991. Bunting eventually moved in with the couple and convinced them to assist in his killings. Like, how does that happen? Like, how do you just, like, move in with someone and be like, hey, you want to kill people with me? You have to, like, I feel like probably be able to recognize something in, like, the other person. Like, you know, like, you know about yourself, you know? Because, like, that'd be very bold if it's, like, a normal person for you to just be like, hey, like, so this is what I'm into. Are you down? Yeah, it's just fucking weird. It is weird. Bunting then married Elizabeth Harvey and through her met her son, James Velasquez. Velasquez would help with her with and suggest later killings. Mark Hayden also lived nearby and became friends with Bunting. He too was eventually drawn into the murders. Like this man found so many people to be like, hey, you wanna you wanna kill people with me? Like what the fuck? <laughs> I don't understand that. In addition to these four main players, Bunting had other accomplices. Bunting's wife, Elizabeth Harvey, also assisted in at least one of the murders. Thomas Trevelyan was initially part of the gang as well, but later became a victim. Oh, plot twist. And Jody Elliott was a relative of Mark Hayden and reportedly helped collect money after the, ki- the killings. So these, these people literally have a whole gang. Yeah. So weird. So victims of the Snowtown murders were often the friends and family of the murderers themselves. For example, Bunting murdered Wagner's partner, Vanessa Lane, after the two broke up due to her involvement in early murders. Other victims, including Gavin Porter and Thomas Trevelyan, lived with Bunting leading up to their deaths. Like Lane, Trevelyan also had assisted with body disposal in previous killings. In addition to murdering his alleged friends, Bunting was tried for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Suzanne Allen, whose body was found buried in the backyard of Bunting's former home. However, the jury was deadlocked and Bunting was never convicted of her murder. So he had killed someone before. But whatever deadlocked, what does deadlocked mean? Oh, like, um, like they couldn't come to like a unanimous decision? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, damn. Imagine uh, being those people that said he didn't kill God, they are probably filled with some regret, but they didn't. Yeah. Humans. That's awful. Before killing victims, Bunting would often record them reciting banking information as they were being tortured. Bunting's behest, behest, oh my God. Sorry, guys. I clearly am not a grammar girl. Um, other men in the group would impersonate the victim or friends of the victim and take money for them or collect uh, or collect on welfare payments. Before he murdered Vanessa Lane, Bunting reportedly made her call her mother to tell her she was moving and didn't want any further contact. He then made her record all of her banking information. According to reports, the man stole at least $95,000 just from victims' welfare benefits alone. That said, Bunting later stated that the real reward for the murders was the act of killing itself. He called the cash they got the icing on the cake. 
1998, Velasquez confided to Bunting that his half-brother, Troy Udy, molested him when he was 13 years old. Bunting responded by setting up Udy's murder. The group visited Udy's house, dragged him from his bed, tortured him, then killed him and disposed of his body. Velasquez's stepbrother, David Johnson, became the final victim of the Snowtown murders on May 9, 1999. The group lured Johnson to the abandoned bank in Snowtown, where they strangled and handcuffed him, then forced him to read a script for a recording. Johnson's recited confessions for crimes and acts he did not commit and gave his financial information. Wagner and Velasquez then left Bunting alone with Johnson and unsuccessfully attempted to access Johnson's funds through an ATM. When they returned, he was dead. The men then reportedly cooked and ate some of Johnson's flesh. Okay. Why? <laughs> oh, Why? that's awful. He was the only victim actually murdered in Snowtown, and his body was found in the vault only set 11 days later. Reportedly, Bunting, Wagner, and Velasquez's murders often involved torture. During the police investigation, authorities recovered knives, saws, a double-barrel shotgun, rope, tape, gloves, pliers, clamps, cloth, and even a variac metallurgy. Some sort of tool <laughs> used to administer electric shocks. In addition to the torture inflicted upon his victims, Bunting also demanded they call him God, Master, Lord, Sir, and Chief Inspector. Yeah. In eight of the 12 cases, the victims' bodies were disposed in large barrels sold with acid. The group moved these barrels around over the years before ultimately placing them in the Snowtown Bank Vault in 1999. On November... Okay, sorry, an ad popped up. On November 21st, 1998, Bunting and Wagner went over to Mike Hayden's house while he and his children were gone. The two men tortured then killed Hayden's wife, Elizabeth, afterwards placing her body in one of the acid-filled barrels. The search for Elizabeth Hayden led investigators to the abandoned bank in Snowtown, where they discovered her body and those of seven other victims on May 20th, 1999. Bunting, Wagner, and Mark Hayden were arrested the following day, and Velasquez was apprehended on May 26th. Allegedly, when authorities later showed Mark Hayden his wife's remain in the barrel, he laughed and did not appear upset. The trial for the Snowtown murders lasted nearly a year, the longest in Australian history up to the point that point. In an effort to receive a lesser sentence, Velasquez gave evidence to authorities and confessed to his role in the murders. Bunting and Wagner went to trial together and were reportedly so calm and cold when they spoke about the victims, three jurors had to walk away from the case. Bunting reportedly never once seemed remorseful for any of his actions. He even read a book during this, his sentencing. But Bunting... Bunting was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole on September 8, 2003. Velasquez was sentenced to life with a 26-year minimum. Wagner got life without parole, and Hayden got 25 years in jail with an 18-year minimum. What the hell? Why did he get all that easy? Wow. Maybe because he wasn't, like, the one who started it? I don't know. I mean, the other guys got life. I don't know. I mean, there must have been something that makes him, like, slightly... Or maybe he, like, got a deal and he, like, talked. That is so weird. As the murders gained national media attention, the small town of Snowtown saw a sort of economic boom as tourists visited to learn more about the murders. That's kind of fucked up. That is gross. Although some residents embraced the publicity, even selling merchandise related to the murders. Oh, that's that's gross. Now, what the fuck? This town seems fucked up. Yep. 
way that he was able to find that many people to commit murders and now people are profiting off of the murders. That is just crazy. Residents referred to the discovery of the bodies as the incident and claimed the town had lost its innocence, despite the fact that 11 of 12 murders occurred miles from Snowtown. Over the years, the town has considered changing its name in order to distance itself from the murders. The possibility of Rose Town was briefly discussed before it was abandoned. Mm-mm. What? Anyways, that was it. Wow, I hadn't heard that one before. Yeah. That, like like you said, how do you meet someone more than some more than one person and convince them to like join you in murdering people? It's crazy, but like you you're so right because they all like they were all sociopaths because like they're showing no remorse or anything. So like he literally found people with the same mindset, but the fact that he did like what did they have like a sociopath anonymous group like right wow there like there must be some way that you can recognize like I said like those traits and like others I don't know it was low-key giving me Dexter vibes though the way that he was like, like killing people who had done wrong yeah but like in a non-Dexter way because I love Dexter even though right but, like, also because it's fiction like <laughs> exactly like but that's that's so why like, that, that's why I was just so interested in the story was that it wasn't just like one guy like he literally wasn't one or two guys not like a husband and wife like he literally had all of these people participate yep and I got like a lot of it probably was had to do with money but like yeah money coercion I don't know yeah wow Ugh, creepy it is so there was like an awkward amount of um wine left so I just like poured a big glass and I was like oh I'll like sip on it but it's like going a little quicker than I thought it would do you work from home tomorrow no because we don't work I've probably told you but when there's one if you're off one day during the week whether you're like sick you're on vacation or like we're closed or whatever you only get one remote day if we're ever off or you're ever off for two days and there's no remote dates so no remote work day so no remote work this week that sucks I know at least it's just tomorrow and Wednesday and then we're off (sighs) okay this I like actually typed notes for once I mean normally when we do true crime I'll type like just like bullet points but I actually tried to like type out not like a script but like kind of so we'll see how it goes so we all organized girl is in our, in our... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see okay so um of all the true crime like I've like consumed over the years since I've been interested in it this is the one that's like always like stuck with me and truly like shook me so today I'm going to be talking about the crimes of Israel Keys. oh good one he uh truly like I I think like one of the most terrifying serial killers of all times um trigger warning for sexual assault but okay I don't want to spend too much time talking about like him and his childhood because like who really cares piece of shit but I feel like I need to briefly talk about it because I feel like it'll provide some important context so he was born in Richmond Utah on January 7th 1978 becoming the second out of what would eventually be 10 children 
Um, his parents at the time were members of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is a sect of Mormonism. And he and his siblings were homeschooled in a very strict Christian environment. In 1983, the family decided to leave the church and they, they moved to a remote area of Stevens County, Washington. Here, they lived in a one-room cabin with no electricity or running water, and they began attending a church called the Ark that promoted a white supremacist Christian ideology. They later would go on to join the Christian Israel Covenant Church that also held those, like, white supremacist beliefs. So early on, that kind of tells you, like, didn't grow up in a super loving environment. Um, as time goes on and he's growing up, he starts showing some troubling behaviors. So just a couple examples shooting at neighbors' houses with BB guns, setting fires, stealing stealing guns, and then selling them, um, and harming animals. So during the animal incident specifically, it's reported that that's when he noticed he was different from, like, his peers because he did it. He harmed a cat, and I don't want to, like, get too much into it because that's sad, but he harmed a cat in front of, like, a family friend, and whereas the family friend was, like, crying and, like, scared, like, he thought it was, like, kind of funny, and that's when he, like, realized, like, okay, like, I'm a little different, I guess. Um, I guess he was somewhat <laughs> Yeah, I know. He joined the army in 1998 and spent time abroad, including time in Egypt. Um, and it's said that he like sexually assaulted some prostitutes or women in Egypt and during his time abroad. He also became began to drink heavily while he was in the army, and that resulted in him being honorably discharged following a 2001 DUI arrest. So after he is out of the army, he moves to Nia Bay, Washington, um, and then eventually Alaska, and that is where he starts a construction business. So yeah, that just a brief background on him. I feel like that kind of sets the stage for his upbringing and what kind of person he was. So it's unknown exactly how many victims Keyes has, but I'm going to start with the one who would eventually be responsible for his arrest. So... The year is 2012. Um, we're in Anchorage, Alaska. An 18-year-old Samantha Koenig is working at Common Grounds, which is a coffee shop. And I say coffee shop, but it's really more of like a coffee stand. It's like a small shed-looking structure with a drive-up window. And so she's closing up work one night, and there is surveillance, surveillance footage. And you can see that just before 8 p.m. on February 1st, 2012, um, Keys walks up to the window while pointing a gun at her, orders her to turn the lights off. Once she does that and it's dark, he jumps through the window and forces her out of the stand and into his truck. During the drive, he tries to calm her down and tell her that the motive is just robbery and he just wants ransom money, but that's a lie. He does take her debit card and her phone, but he ultimately also takes her life. So he gets Samantha to his house, um, more specifically into his tool shed where he ties her up. He then goes to check on his girlfriend and his daughter. So, yes, he has a girlfriend and a daughter at his house, and he just brought one of his victims back to that house and put her in a tool shed. So he returns to the shed with a glass of wine, just drinking the glass of wine, and he ultimately ends up raping and killing her. Next, um, he leaves the body in the shed, and he gets ready for a pre-planned Caribbean cruise that he's leaving for the next day with his family. So he has abducted Samantha um raped and murdered her and just leaves her in the shed while he takes off on a vacation what a piece of shit God. 
So by the next day, Samantha is reported missing. It was, I believe, mainly her boyfriend and her father who started to get worried. The night before, her boyfriend was actually supposed to be picking her up from work. But once Keys had possession of Samantha's phone, he was texting her boyfriend, pretending to be her, saying that she didn't need a ride anymore um, and she was she was good for a bit. So um, I think, like, Samantha probably told him, you know, like, while she's in the truck and realized she's being kidnapped, like, my boyfriend's going to come looking for me. Like, they're going to look for me. So Keys told the boyfriend that she was all good, didn't need a ride, pretending to be her. Um, thankfully, the FBI wasted no time once she was reported missing because how many times have we heard that, like, infuriating situation when an adult goes missing and law enforcement doesn't want to take it seriously because they'll be like, well, they're an adult. They're allowed to leave if they want. Yeah, that's so true. But they thankfully got right to work on trying to find her. Now it's two weeks later. So we're at February 17th, 2012. And he decides to, and like, I don't even know like what kind of trigger warning this would go for, but this is like one of the creepiest parts, I think, of keys for me. So Samantha's been dead for two weeks, right? He killed her before he went on his vacation. He returns and decides to take a ransom photo and send it to her parents and promise that she would be returned unharmed if they paid the ransom. So he takes Samantha Koenig's dead body and he sews her eyes open with fishing line, braids her hair and puts makeup on her face. He then props her up against a wall and has her hold a like that day's issue of the newspaper and took a picture because that was supposed to be like proof of life um, to prove that she was still alive and unharmed in order to try to get the ransom money. So on February 24th, he texted her boyfriend from her phone and told him to look for a package in a local park. There, Anchorage police found the photo and a note demanding that $30,000 be deposited into Koenig's bank account and her parents gladly paid it because they were like, we'll do whatever. We see she's still alive. Just like we want her back. So he obviously has full access to her bank because he has the debit card, but thankfully he was kind of an idiot. And I feel like that happens a lot with like these serial killers and stuff. They'll be so smart for so long, then they do one stupid thing that screws everything up for them. But it's like, thank God they ended up being stupid at some point. So he's driving around using the debit card and it's like they obviously can like track where her debit card's being used from. The FBI is following him, but he always uses disguises at the actual ATMs because, you know, the ATMs and, like, the banks, they have cameras, so he'll be wearing, like, a mask, a wig, like, something on his head. However, one day, he made the mistake of allowing his car to be seen in the camera while he was making a withdrawal in Arizona. So now people, law enforcement knows kind of what kind of car they need to be looking for. So by March 13th, a Texas state trooper in Shepherd, Texas, spotted that car that they had been told to be on the lookout for in a hotel parking lot. He waited for the owner to come out, and then he followed the car until the car exceeded the speed limit speed limit, and pulled him over. So once again, Keys, you're being a fucking idiot. Like, you, like you're speeding. You're going to get pulled over. And so they searched the car, and they found Samantha's ATM card, her cell phone, and the same disguise Warren um, that was captured on the ATM camera the last time her card had been used. Finally, by April 2nd, Samantha's body was discovered and he confessed to her death um, by the, he had confessed to her death by this point and also confessed to staging the ransom note. So while Samantha was his last victim, she was unfortunately far from his first. Like I said at the beginning, the true number of his victims is unknown, 
but authorities believe it to be somewhere between um, 11 and 12. And according to him, his first victim was the year before he joined the army. And his first victim was not a murder, but an abduction and a rape. In 1997 or 1998 in Oregon, he abducted a teenage girl and raped her. Um, he ended up letting her go after she like was pleading with him. So apart from the ransom photo, I think like what makes Keyes so terrifying is his victimology or rather his lack thereof. So he, his victimology was just really one of convenience. If he happened to cross your path and it seemed like a good time, no one was around, he would seize the opportunity. That is so, so terrifying. Exactly. Like, worse than like anything. Like, I mean, not worse than anything, but you know, like if he knew those people or like, like anyone could have been his victim. Exactly. Literally, literally anyone. And I will get there in a second. So um, he said that he would try to, or he would wait to accost people in places like parks. Like he spent a lot of time in national parks, cemeteries or campgrounds. Oh yeah. So he would wait around like not crowded places. And he was quoted as saying not much to choose from in a manner of speaking, but there's also no witnesses really. So he also would travel. He would travel around the country and he would hide these like what they've called kill kits. So like a bucket with, you know, some things that you might need if you were to try to take a life. Um, and he would just hide them, like bury them. And then he would come back for them like years later. So for example, in 2011, while he was living in Alaska, he flew to Chicago and then drove to Vermont where he killed married couple Bill and Lorraine Courier at their farmhouse. He killed Bill first, raping Lorraine before murdering her. So according to Keyes, because like I said, it's still unconfirmed how many he has, how many victims, um, he killed four people in Washington state, a couple sometimes between 20, 2001 and 2005, two separate victims in 2005 and 2006. He also stated that in 2009, he murdered someone on the East Coast and then left the body in New York state. So the FBI said that they're fairly confident that this um, that victim from the East Coast was Deborah Feldman, a New Jersey resident who went missing in April 2009. So that kind of matches up with his account. So he also, and this is crazy, not crazy, but it's um, local. Do you remember when we were in middle school, there was that mom and daughter who were killed at the mall? Okay, so there is a slight, they maybe think that that might have been him I remember hearing that yes okay so um this is from one of my sources but so I'm just going to speak right from it but it says Keys is a suspect in a series of 2007 crimes by the Boca killer near Boca Raton Florida the first case in the murder series was that of Randy Randy Gorenberg who is 52 and on March 23rd was abducted from the Boca mall within an hour her body was okay I can't read Within an hour, her body with two fatal bullet wounds was dumped at a different location. The second crime was the kidnapping of an unidentified woman who claimed that she and her toddler son were abducted from the same shopping mall parking lot on August 7, 2007. Though the kidnapper wore a mask and sunglasses, the victim caught a glimpse of his face and described him as a tall, athletically built man with long hair, which generally matched Key's description. The woman was released unharmed and the assailant forced her to withdraw cash from an automate from an ATM. The third case was the murder of Nancy Bukikio, 47, and her seven-year-old daughter, Joey Bukikio, who were fatally shot in their vehicle at the Boca Town Center Mall in the parking lot, um, December 12, 2007. 
Another possible victim was Lauren Spear, who was a college student who literally just vanished after leaving a bar in Bloomington, Indiana in 2011. And so for that one, um, I couldn't find this in any of my sources, but I remember from some of the like other podcasts I've listened to on him that matches his MO because it was like completely so random and like absolutely no really clues left behind. So while he was in custody, he talked quite a bit, um, almost, but I feel like it's like this with a lot of serial killers who get caught and then talk. They take pleasure though out of like they're in control of the situation and they're in control, you know, like law enforcement is like dying to like get as much as they can out of them but these people like take pleasure in knowing that like they can limit or control how much that they actually confess to so he would talk here and there um he also expressed his desire for a quick execution date saying that he dreaded being behind bars for years and he didn't want his mother or daughter to suffer because of his crimes you know what i don't fucking care you should languish behind bars for years and years and years because you didn't have any regard for anyone else when you were taking their life yeah sorry you don't have a choice too like what the fuck and that was another thing like I just said how he didn't want his daughter to suffer so he kept telling the FBI like if my name is ever released like I'm gonna like stop talking like I don't want my daughter to like know about this however it did happen that his name was released and it made its way back to him and he committed suicide in his jail cell um, December 1st, 2012, while he was waiting um, for trial for the Samantha death. So despite warnings not to give him a razor blade, he had been given one. He slit his wrist and also strangled himself while lying in bed. His body was found the next morning. And he had also left behind some like drawings and a letter. So that is Israel Keys. There is a lot on him. Um, if you're like, interested in learning more about his victims or some of his um potential victims there's also a really really great podcast called true crime bullshit the host does an amazing job and they play a lot of the recordings of his fbi interrogation so that's always like chilling when you actually get to hear the killer speak but i definitely would recommend that if you are interested in learning more but that is israel keys super fucking creepy wow yeah but i mean just the random murders are just is what's terrifying like exactly like that's like you could have just been mine you know i mean i don't want to say that like no, like obviously no murder victims deserve it but like you could just be like minding your own business like going about your day and you just happen to cross paths with him and then you're next like it's terrifying awful yeah <coughs> Also, the fact that he potentially could have been responsible for the Boca ones because, like, that would that like hit so close to home, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. Like that when those ha- when that happened, like that like shook our city. Like, because- oh my god, yeah. Like everyone, especially like moms, like women, were so afraid to go to the mall mm-hmm. for so long because it happened three times there. Um, yeah. reviews. Yeah, I've got nothing new. <laughs> we'll make it quick. Last week was very chaotic and busy for me. Um, so I'm still reading my Akotar series. I'm still in the second book, which is just upsetting. But well, you have been busy, like you just said, though. Yeah. So I'll get back in the swing of things, but that's really it. What about you? Also, nothing. Um, 
like last week was busy for me too this weekend was busy for me we start I mean it's not new but we're watching Midnight Club right now we're just on like a Mike Flanagan kick lately so it's it's good I like it better than Midnight Mass I'm not like Midnight Mass so have you watched Midnight Club I don't think I have no it's um so basically it's about well it opens kind of like the main ish character is getting ready to go off to college it's set in the 90s come to find out she has cancer and she finds this kind of like hospice for kids with terminal illnesses where they can just kind of live out their days and there is medical attention or medical like people there medical staff there's a group therapy um one of her first nights there she kind of stumbles into this club they have once the staff is asleep called the midnight club where they trade ghost stories and drink wine and it's Mike Flynn again so it's very creepy and I will tell more after we finish it um that's it I'm still reading my book for my book club at work but I haven't actually read it in like a week um yeah not a lot to add (laughs) okay moving right along to reviews pop culture pop culture that's what I meant that's what I was thinking (laughs) I'm like unless you just thought of some new ones from two minutes ago oh well did you hear the allegations that came out against Diddy no so um Cassie has accused him of rape and abuse and um that's all we really know for right now like obviously you always want to like believe women um and I like I personally don't think that people come out 10 years later just to make shit up and like start something like or like not even 10 years like 20 probably at this point 15 yeah so wow um wait so I actually did think of a review (laughs) okay related to pop culture um I was listening to the Britney memoir on Spotify because I'm Spotify guys in case you didn't know oh um the audiobook and wow wow mind blown it's so so sad what happened to her and like I mean obviously if you don't if you know anything about Britney Spears and you know that she was in a uh, conservatorship for a really long time and just it's really really sad and she basically says like she knew what she was in but she just didn't fight it because if she wanted to see her sons because that was really the only way she would get a chance to see them but it's really cool like it it, I mean it starts from the very beginning she tells every little detail of her life um all of her love interests how like Justin Timberlake cheated on her and like all this stuff so I highly recommend reading it or listening to it I've I find listening to like stuff like that is a lot easier for me than reading just because I don't know I lose interest sometimes and I'm always in the car but okay that's my rack that I finally remembered I do want to listen to it and or read it Sookie Waterhouse is pregnant with Robert Pattinson's baby you know I did see that I like her I liked her in um that one show that one um that was out on <laughs> that was out on Prime. The um fuck, what's it called? The one about like the the band. I don't know. Oh, 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 Daisy Jones and the Six. Yes, that one. I still haven't watched that. I really need to because I loved the book. You need to watch it. It's so good. I know, I know, I know. 
Oh, not really a review. Well, I guess a review. Like if you're a Bravo person, they have all the panels from Bravo. Well, they have a lot of BravoCon on Peacock, but they have all the panels. So I've been like watching those. It's like, like I fall asleep each night. Very entertaining. Um, oh, I just nice. thought of something. Oh, um, FSU might be screwed because our quarterback got injured on Saturday and he is out for the rest of the season. First of all, I'm happy he's okay. He's been like sharing updates, but he like his career FSU is over. I'm very sad. And we have our like biggest rivalry game this week and we have the ACC championship next week. So what happened? Um, I don't know. I honestly didn't see the games we were at Friendsgiving and we also were playing like North Alabama. So we were like, who freaking cares? Like also maybe I'll cut this out. This is bad, but like you're going to get injured of all, like when we're not even playing like an important game, like we're playing North Alabama. Um, I heard he maybe snapped his tibia. Oh, damn. Yeah. Like it's, it was really, really bad. Yeah. So just prayers for his like recovery and his like physical and mental well-being as he like navigates this but yeah for sure but yeah it's rivalry week guess it is but uf's quarterback also got hurt last week so though my dad said their backup quarterback's kind of good so it's all good maybe it'll just make it a more interesting game because it's just gonna be a blowout and that's true and now it'll be good yeah i agree you know what other game's going to be a nail-biter? What we real say? Michigan-Ohio State. So, Ruth is allowed. Dogs are allowed in this bar that I go to every Sunday. So, I'm going to bring her on Saturday. Hell yeah. State game. As you should. Does she have, like, a little bandana? Like, a little Michigan bandana or something? She has one from when she was baby. Um, mm-hmm. um Like, a shirt. But I think I'm going to get her, like, I was looking. It's actually going to be really cold on Saturday. Here, they have, like, this cute little Michigan puffer. And it's only, like, 25 bucks. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you have to get that. (laughs) Like, she'd be so stinking cute in it. You gotta get it. A little puffer jacket. Mm -mm -mm. We ordered these little, like, Thanksgiving headbands for, like, all the girls on Thanksgiving. I'm really excited because they're really cute. They have little, like, turkeys and, like, little cornucopias. (laughs) Gonna be fun. Well... Happy Thanksgiving again, guys. We're so thankful for you and for you guys tuning in to listen to us ramble about nonsense most weeks. So thankful for you. Um, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, rate, follow at Sunlight at what? Let's unwind podcast on every yes. yeah. Um enjoy your time with your friends, your family, your dog, whoever you're spending your day with. Um And yeah, we'll talk to you guys next week. Next week. Bye.